Cool. Right. Good morning. So hopefully you've got your Bible, and if you remember, we're looking at a passage on page 977. So it's the second half of Matthew chapter 11. Just tidy up. <laughs> so much mess behind here. <laughs> There's pens falling down. Okay. Well, now, I, last week I started with the, um, the, the TV program, The Undercover Boss. Some people had seen it. This week I'm going out on At First Sight. Right, hands up if you've seen Married at First Sight. Oh, there's a few. <laughs> there's a few people going, yeah, I'm very fortunate. <laughs> Don't like to confess. <laughs> but in Married at First Sight, for those that don't know, um, there's a, a couple of people volunteer for the show who are single and looking for a life partner. But sometimes maybe that hasn't gone so well for them. And so a bunch of psychologists and uh, relationship advisors and sociologists get together and kind of pick these people apart. And they decide who of the other contestants they think that this person has the best chance of kind of a good relationship with. And so the whole thing happens, as the title says, married at first sight, the whole thing, their wedding dresses go on, there's bridesmaids, there's rings, there's a honeymoon, there's a home for them to live in. (laughs) What are you doing, Jeff? (laughs) And um, you get to watch this couple that have never met before kind of see if these sociologists and psychologists are right. And at the end of it, they can decide if they want to go on with this relationship or not. Now, it isn't actually a legal relationship, but the words are said. So it depends what you think about those words, doesn't it? And there's an opportunity to keep committing to one another. Um, When we think about relationships, I don't know about you, but romantic or friendship, um, they are important, really important. I was at the university uh, on Friday, and we were talking about our emotional health with them, and I was asking them to vote on what part of their emotional health they would like to improve, if they could choose one thing. So we had anxiety, which you would maybe expect. We had perfectionism. It's a very hard university to get into. Maybe you'd expect that. But the third one I noticed was relationships. And relationships are key, aren't they? There's something perhaps we struggle with a little bit. I tend to be attracted to quite loyal people um, and kind-natured because I've been in relationships where people have been unloyal to me. And it kind of leaves a bit of a mark, doesn't it? Because deep down we're thinking, can I trust you? Can I trust you at the end of the day? Are you going to, to be with me? And perhaps you can identify with that, or there's something else that you would say, well, I look for this in a relationship, and I know why, because this or this happened to me. Our past experiences can, can make a difference, can't they? In the Christian faith, you may hear someone say that they have a relationship with God, and that can feel a little bit 
strange and can bring up a bunch of ideas for us as well about, well, what might that mean to have a relationship with God? And we'll, we'll bring our own stuff to that as well, won't we? Our experiences of church or Christians or people, we'll bring that to the table and perhaps we'll project that on to what that might be like. It might seem to you that some people start this relationship with a kind of jump off a cliff sort of approach of like, woohoo, I'm in, kind of. They've seen, uh, they've sort of heard about Jesus and they're straight in. For others, it's more of a process. They're kind of finding out, uh, doing their research, trying to work out, is this someone I can trust? And that's certainly the way that I approach relationships. I'm thinking, can I trust this person? But as we, last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 11, and what we're talking about was that discovering who Jesus is and whether he can be trusted is really important. And we might think, oh, it's not that important, really. But the problem comes that the words that Jesus said about himself and human beings and the world, if they are true, have massive implications. Massive implications for us personally and the world. So we were thinking last week that sitting on the fence, the kind of maybe world, wasn't something Jesus offers. We talked about how if you wanted to be a part of what Jesus was talking about, a kingdom of justice and peace and forgiveness, and to experience that loving relationship, then you have to make up your mind. Is he a prophet Is he a fantasy? Is he the creator? Is he a ruler? Who is he is really important. So this week, we'll have a look at some of Jesus' teachings and what he says about himself. So look in your Bibles. You've had it read already, but we're looking specifically at chapter 11, verse 25 to 30. Okay, so have that ready for a minute. So far in Matthew, we've seen that people have reacted very differently to Jesus' teachings and miracles. And it isn't always what you expect or how you expect them to react. Remember, the Jewish community have been waiting, praying, studying, talking about a king that's to come for years and years and years, in fact, into the hundreds. And right from the beginning, when Jesus appears on the scene doing these miracles, large crowds follow him. There's huge, they're everywhere. We have that incident where he feeds 5,000. So we know the crowds that were following were in the thousands. But the people that Jesus chooses as his disciples, the ones that he's going to train to be like him, the ones he's going to teach in a really intimate relationship, an apprenticeship, as it were, are really uneducated fishermen. Now, this is quite surprising because at the time, 
rabbis, teachers who went around that place wouldn't have chosen those people. They'd have probably chosen people who were quite highly educated and actually looking for a teacher. They wanted to follow a rabbi. They wanted to be a disciple. So right from the beginning, we see Jesus choosing people who aren't usual, aren't the ones we expect. And very near the beginning, we see a Roman centurion who knows absolutely nothing potentially about these Hebrew scriptures, about the king, who seems to recognize Jesus' authority and puts his trust in him to heal his child. Meanwhile, the educated, those that studying scripture, those we expect to understand who Jesus is, like John the Baptist that we saw last week, who had his own doubts and was questioning, we see a lot of these educated people saying, no, this is not the king. Jesus finishes in the middle of chapter 11 with a sobering warning for these people. And it's really hard to read, in fact. It's just before our passage. And he talks about how when God's justice comes, the towns who claim to follow God, claim to be keeping all his rules, studying his scripture, but have rejected Jesus... It will be worse for them than the people that they really look down on as being bad people. Now, that is a topsy-turvy world, isn't it? Because you've got these people that are religiously very nice, seem to be doing all the right things. They're looking down on others going, we're not like them. And Jesus said, if you don't accept me, it's going to be worse for you than them. And that has implications, doesn't it? We need to know who Jesus is. So here in verse 25 and 6, Jesus gives an insight into what's happening. He talks of the things being hidden and revealed by the Father, that's God, and himself. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. So he makes this contrast between the wise and the little children. Okay? The little children see who he is, the wise seem not to. So let's look at the contrast here we see that on one side we have the wise. We've already said they're educated, perhaps degree, or they've got PhD. They're the very clever clogs of the world. And on the other side, we've got potentially preschoolers. And then on one side, we've got people who go, uh, people go to them for answers. They go to the wise, they please tell us what it means, and those that people give answers to. We have those who see the main role as educating and those who see the main role as learning. And then we have this word. If you look under little children, we'll see the Greek word. It can mean this, a simple-minded, immature person, childish, childlike, or infants. And so what can be the opposite? Well, potentially mature, clever-minded, grown-up, or adult. Interesting. It's talking about those we think and they think should be able to work out who Jesus is very quickly, cannot And it says, because the Father has hidden it from them. 
But he's revealed to those who we might think of as unwise, foolish, or uneducated. They know who Jesus is straight away. And doesn't this seem really harsh? Hiding stuff. You think, well, what, what, what? Jesus is loving? The Father is loving? Why is he hiding stuff? Like It's like a big game, like, ooh, you could find out who I am, but I'm just not going to tell you. <laughs> It's not like that. Well, look at this. Look at what the early church thought. This is a letter to the Corinthian church from Paul, who was like a church planter in the early days. So we get a bit of an insight into how they understood what Jesus is saying. It says, for the message of the cross, that is that Jesus died on the cross for the salvation of the world, the forgiveness of sins, to right everything that is wrong, to bring peace and his kingdom and justice is absolute foolishness to those who are perishing, those that don't understand. But us who are being saved, that have trust in Jesus, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence, and the intelligent I will frustrate. And that's a quote from Isaiah. And then he goes goes on, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Remember, they wanted more signs from him. Greeks look for wisdoms. Greeks just means anyone who's not Jew to help you. Um, they look for, for that. well, I can't figure it out. It doesn't seem to make sense. Jews demand that. Um, but we cre- preach Christ who's become a stumbling block. We looked at that last week. I'm not going to look at it this week. To Jews and foolishness, the Gentiles. But those whom God has called, both Jews and Jews, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And then verse 27, it says, God chose the foolish, God chose the weak, verse 28, God chose the lowly, the despised, the things that are not. We think about the things that are not, what would we think? Not clever, not popular, not successful, not powerful, not educated, not desirable, not people we wanted to hang out with, not, not, not. He chose the people that are not. It's great news if we feel like a nut. So, so that no one can boast before him. And the New Living Translation, they translate verse 25 like this, which I think really helps. He says, um, hidden these things from those who think themselves wise and clever think themselves wise and clever so we might add another one to our chart proud and humble okay so that's where he's going for the pride they don't seem to see it but those that are humble do those who recognize a need of god okay So you might be proud and think, I don't need God. I can figure this out. But those who are humble to say, God, show me. 
And if we think back in Matthew, to Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8, you can look it up if you want to, Jesus said this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. If you are humble enough to ask, nothing is hidden. You see, humility. So those who think but don't ask, don't see. But those that think and ask, of course they'll see. The humble ask. So verse 27, Jesus goes on. He says, all things have been committed to me. And elsewhere, he says, all authority has been given. So he's got authority and he's got all things. He has power and authority. All things are his. And I want you for a moment to just pause and I'm going to ask you a question. If now you had all authority and all power, what would you do? don't need to answer. (laughs) Because we must ask, what does Jesus do with all authority and all power? What does he do with it? If we believe that Jesus, potentially, what we see, what we read, what we experience, yes, he has all that authority. If we believe the evidence that we have in front of us, what is he like and what does he want of me? How will he exercise the power and authority? So let's have a look. 28, verse 28. What does he say? You are going to be smited. No. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus invites to come. The invitation to come not to a place, not to rules, not to regulations, come to me, to him, and take my yoke. Now, yoke, we might think of yoke in an egg, <laughs> okay? But the people listening wouldn't have thought yoke in an egg. They would have immediately thought of bondage and slavery. That's weird, isn't it? Take my yoke. Is this going to go? Here we go. Oh, we've done that. Here we are. So here's what they would have been thinking of. Thinking of the cows yoked together, linked together in servitude to work the fields. And yoke was a biblical metaphor for human bondage or servitude. God broke Israel's yoke of slavery when they freed them from Egypt. If we look at the Leviticus passage, no, (laughs) he says this, the early rabbis spoke of taking the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. 
by living according to the laws found in the teachings of Moses. But Jesus doesn't invite them to the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures. He invites invites them to himself. He says, come to me and be yoked with me. So thinking of the picture, we're to be yoked with him. We know that they thought of this in terms of uh, a kind of a long permanent commitment of bondage to someone. Because Paul writes, (laughs) this doesn't work. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) He writes, beginning of his letter to the Romans, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Can you see? He understood what it was to be yoked to Jesus. But what's that like? Remember, Jesus has all power, all authority. He's told us that he's ultimate authority. But what's at the very heart, the core of Jesus being? I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The word gentle in Greek can be translated meek, lies in the meek will inherit the earth, or humble or lowly. We see it in the verses later on in Matthew. When Jesus is going into Jerusalem, people are shouting, Hosanna for the king of David. He says, here you'll come, your king comes gentle or meek or humble and riding on a donkey. And that's from Micah. Micah is speaking of the king to come, who will come righteous and victorious, but not like the Caesars of Rome, who come on a magnificent steed, and they've come to dominate in pomp and ceremony, and they're going to subdue and oppress the people that they're coming into, but lowly and humble and gentle, will conquer death and pain, and all that is wrong in the world, not through war, but through sacrifice and humility. Jesus is saying that his yoke is not a burden. It's not forced labor. It's not hardship. It's not weeping. The yoke is easy and the burden is light. It's like he's saying, my yoke is really no yoke at all. You don't need to earn my love. I'm going to do the hard lifting. And when you take my yoke, it's easy. It's well-fitting. Instead of hard-earned labor to earn my rewards or pleasure, although it doesn't negate work, we're not lazy people who don't do anything in the kingdom, but my yoke brings love and it brings rest. It is light and it's freeing and it's not burdensome. Come to me, he says, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is inviting the weary and the burdened, whether that be through society, whether that be through religion, whether that be through circumstances, to come and swap their yoke for his yoke. Jesus lived a life, although fully God, as the most perfect human ever. He died on the cross, putting to death our mistakes, our wrong thinking, our actions, our failures, and he rose from the dead bringing a new way of life, which we have access to through being yoked to him. We find a life lived out of a place of rest, not working to find rest, working to discover rest. This is not a work six days and then get your rest, but from that place of rest. 
In the Psalms we read, I know, there we go. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. There's a sense that in our very hearts, in our very being, rest, a sense of peace and contentment and without striving to worry about what people think about us or what we should do or how hard we should work in order to get relationships with others. Rest, true rest, is found in a relationship with Jesus. So we must ask, have you found this place of rest? And today, are you burdened, maybe with demands that you place on yourself or others or society? Are you weary of being what everyone wants you to be? Perhaps weary of life? Have relationships failed for you? Or have you failed others? And Jesus says, come to me. I will not fail. I am faithful. I am the one you need where you will find rest for your soul. From your very core, you will know that you're where you're meant to be. And a life with Jesus, he says, is not burdensome. So if we think, oh, it must be really hard is not burdensome. So, Jesus invites us to lay down our yoke that we are carrying, our failures, frustrations, fears, pressures, and come to him. One of the early Christian fathers understood it like this. He says, you arouse in us so that praising may bring us joy. Because you have made us and drawn us to yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. So, how can we know that yoking ourselves to Jesus is right? For some, it does seem really simple. Childlike faith. People say that that kind of makes sense in the light of these verses. You'll meet people that say, I've always known Jesus. I started, I was dedicated in church. I've never known a time without him. But they've still had moments where they've got to trust him. And you'll see others that say, I figured it out, read a lot of books first. I spoke to a lot of people. I prayed a lot. And then I took that step to be yoked to Jesus. Bit like married at first sight. Perhaps we're not ready to take that step and that's okay that makes sense we would I would expect you to think I need to know who this person is first but Jesus says here we will only see really who he is if we're humble enough to ask who are you so if you want to investigate further I've got a little plethora of books that you can be reading uh, that might help you. You might want to speak to me or Jez. You might want to join a small group, finding out about Jesus a bit more with others that are investigating and asking, oh, I'd like to know, because this is a pretty big question. But for now, let's just pray together, and then um, I think we'll sing. Father God, we want to understand you more. 
We want to know who you are. And we know that this never stops. We want to know more of you. We want you to reveal more of who Jesus is. And Father, for those beginning this journey, for those who are unsure, I want to pray, Father, that you reveal to them who Jesus is. And for those that have walked with you for years, Father, I want to pray that they would keep being yoked to you, keep trusting in you for each day and knowing that true rest for their souls. In Jesus' name, amen.